0: Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Those are the first three verses and the last verse of Psalm 41, which is along with Psalm 52, are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, July the 19th, 2021. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our studies in the books of 1 Samuel and Acts, and also in the Gospel according to Mark. So we're continuing in the life of David, and remember that David is on the run from the murderous King Saul, whom God had anointed initially, and then um, he blew his anointing. He lost he Saul lost his anointing because he listened to the people rather than to god and so now david has been anointed the new king over israel but he's not risen to that role yet because saul still occupies that position and, and so here what we see in this first samuel 24 passage is is that that he's chasing him he comes from uh fighting the philistines And then when he comes back, he's told David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul takes 3,000 chosen men, goes into the wilderness to find David. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, and there's a cave there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men said, hey, David, here he is. This is the day which the Lord said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And so David sneaks up behind Saul while he's relieving himself and cuts off a corner of his robe, and then David lets him go. But at the same time, David's heart is struck because he did this thing, and he's he, he is convinced that he's done something out that's called sin, <laughs> that he has uh, spoken, not spoken against, but he's taken action against the Lord's anointed. To put up my hand against him because he's the Lord's anointed. Now, what he's cut off is the hem of the robe. He's cut off the hem. Well, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it, but in reality, it is. It's it's a bigger deal than than we think it is because that hem of the robe, it, it, there's there's a um, information there that would identify Saul as the king of Israel, and so when David cuts off that corner of his robe, what it's doing is it, it's cutting off the the um, Witness to the world that this is Israel's king. And so David's done more than just cut off a little piece of his robe. No, he's cut off the part that identifies him as the king. And so David then yells at Saul as he goes away, My Lord the king. And then Saul turned and looked behind him. And when he did, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to him. Because David is acknowledging that he is indeed the king no matter what he's done. No matter whether he has that identifier on his uh, robe still or not, he is the king, and that's exactly what David said. He just asked the simple question, why do you believe all these people that think David seeks your harm? Why why is that? I've done my best to support you and be faithful to you, and even now, I could have killed you. Look. See this piece of your robe. And, he, and Saul has to be able to identify that it's a piece of his own robe. And so he, he says, look, I, I didn't do it. I, even when I had the opportunity to harm you, I didn't do it. And he says, now, whatever that means, um, I want the Lord to judge between the two of us. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be against you. In other words, what he's saying is you're trying to kill me, but I had an opportunity to kill you and I didn't. And so I'm asking the Lord to judge between the two of us and see which one of us is is the righteous person in this in this instance and in this this whole mess of you trying to kill me. And Saul recognizes it. He says to David, you're more righteous than I for you've repaid me good whereas I've repaid you evil. There's another place where you get that similar kind of a sentiment and that is when Judah, who is the father of of the uh, tribe that David belongs to, and that Jesus belongs to, it's when he's confronted by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, with his own implements, and he realizes he's the one who has made her pregnant, and she did only what she had to do in order to accomplish what God had said and that he and his family had failed to do the right thing. And so he says, you're more righteous than I am. And and Saul says the same thing. He recognizes it. I'm out here to murder you, David. I'm out here to kill you, and yet you let me go when you had me in your hands. And, And he recognizes at the end of this, I know you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, and then he asks him to swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will destroy and and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house I mean Saul's concerned that they're going to be wiped out entirely, that David will wipe out the entire house of Saul, but and so he begs him not to do this, in spite of the fact that he, he, he is out here with murderous intent towards David, and he's not going to end that intention. It's not going to end this day. He's going to continue to pursue David every chance that he gets, although this day, because he recognizes his guilt, he goes home. And then David and his men go up to the stronghold. It's, it's amazing that David had the forbearance to do this and then felt the remorse and the guilt that he did over having cut off that piece of Saul's robe. But David is not going to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He's going to wait for the Lord to take care of this, quote, problem of this murderous, demonic king who's coming after him and trying to destroy him before he ever becomes king himself. It's important that, that we recognize these things and that we leave this to the Lord. It's, we've got to leave all the results for everything to him. And that's the message of the, the gospel as well, which is Mark 4, 1 to 20. And Jesus is beginning to teach beside the sea. So he's standing on the land, but he's standing beside the sea. And a large, very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the crowd was beside the sea on the land. So he had to get back up from people so that the press against him was so great that he needed to get some distance so that he could see everybody and they could see and hear him. And so Jesus begins to teach there and he tells this parable of the sower. A man goes out to sow and as he sowed, some, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. Others fell on rocky soil where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold and so Jesus tells that parable and and, and as I've mentioned this before that I feel like this parable comes up more than any other uh, passage of scripture because it's in multiple gospels is part of the reason but but it feel like it comes up more often than anything else and and so over the years what I've kind of seen is is that that the ground of my heart changes over time that, that there were plenty of people who were sowing seed and who were who were preaching the gospel to me and, and I heard these things and, and, and at various stages of my life I was all of these right? I, I was the person who who it was thrown out and then it just went away it, the birds devoured it it didn't do anything at all and then there were other times when, when he would throw that seed on the rocky ground and it, it would spring up but then it would wither in the heat of the sun and there were other times when I had so much else going on in my life that I couldn't focus on this and so it would it would go away there and then finally he had prepared the ground of my life enough through misfortunes, difficulties, but success and everything that that went into my life prior to that, um, it, where it finally took root and, and began to actually bear some fruit in my life. First, and then he gave me an opportunity to speak the word. But but the the thing is that we're supposed to just sow the seed and leave the growth. And the, the result of that to him, because there's no condemnation for the sower for throwing things in rocky ground and, and other you know, places where it was inapt to grow. <clears throat> and so there's no condemnation. There, the, the person is only supposed to sow the seed. And so it, it's important that we continue to, to do that, that we not um, stop sowing seed anywhere, in anybody, anybody particular's life. It, it, it can take a long time of consistently sowing that seed and preparing, letting the Lord prepare the ground where it can finally take root. It, it's important that we not give up on anybody. It's important that we never look at other people and say, well, that will be infertile ground, therefore I won't sow the seed. No, we're called to sow the seed. And the seed is the word. And it's to, to speak about that. And, and no matter how long it takes, that's all we're supposed to do is continue to sow that seed because the Lord's the one who prepares the ground of the heart to finally receive it. And so we don't know when that will come. And so we just have to keep doing the job that we've been given to do, which is to sow the seed, go and make disciples of all nations. In the the Acts passage, you see Paul He has been here and and was wildly successful, and they asked him to come back the following week because when he preached the gospel, the synagogue heard it and, and wanted to know more about what Paul had to say. And so the next Sabbath, it says, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. In other words, they're making ad hominem arguments. They're just making it personal about Paul they're they're not refuting him they're reviling him and then finally he and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of god be first spoken to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we're turning to the gentiles for the lord has commanded us saying <clears throat> i have made you a light for the gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth paul says look you know, we, we came to you first. We attempted to do what Jesus said, which was to bring in the lost sheep of Israel. We've tried to come to you and, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. But you don't think you're worthy of receiving that? That's fine with us. Because we're just going to move on. We're going to move on to the Gentiles. We're going to move on to people who have never heard this before. And we're going to see what God does when we do that. We're going to see if people uh, among the Gentiles receive it. Um, we, we're, we're just washing the dust off our feet which is exactly what they do as they leave and and it's important like I said that that we we acknowledge there sometimes when we just have to move on that our day in a place has, has ended our, our time here has come to an end and it's not going to bear any more fruit and if you want to fuss and fight with me then then that's your prerogative but I'm not going to stay and do that and here in Asheville I mean I had many situations like that um, we met for a time in a Uh, cafe that some friends of ours owned here, and when we met there on Sunday afternoons, frequently people would come in and and would want to dispute with me while we were in the middle of a service, and and I'd put them off and tell them, we'll talk about this afterwards, but then it it would become an ad hominem argument against Christians, because they didn't like Christians for one reason or another. I have no idea, typically, what that reason would be, but once it comes to that, there's no point in continuing to argue with people. It's just not worth it. It's not going anywhere. They're not listening any longer and so sometimes you got to cut and move on and, and you, you can't spend all your time arguing with people who, who are no longer arguing about the same thing that you're talking about I mean uh, recently recently I, I had some back and forth with somebody in a different kind of forum that had to do with they said you know that 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 Christianity is not what shapes America, it was the Enlightenment, and it's was like, well, no. I think the very first principle of the Declaration of Independence, that, that all men are created equal, endowed with their creator by certain inalienable rights, tells you exactly what it was. It, that's not an Enlightenment document at that point. It's referring specifically to Judeo-Christian values, and, and then they said, well, every, every culture has myths how would we be any different if we believed for instance the epic of gilgamesh rather than the uh story of the flood as recorded in the bible and and you know they were trying to minimize the importance of that and then trying to say that that we wouldn't really be any different and the reality is is as i told him was it's remarkably different <laughs> i mean it it would it would tell you one thing there's this in in um in the Gilgamesh epic, it's a battle between multiple gods that causes all this thing, and so there's this insane sort of um, worldview that comes out of that, and, and that would be that that there's everything is unpredictable because the gods are unpredictable and they're crazy, and things spin out of control, and somebody on Earth has to put that thing right. Ultimately, the king does, and so that's the that's a very different sort of worldview that comes out of that because if you look at it the other way then then if you look at it from our perspective no we believe in a creator god who is not only good but who is also in control all the way through the flood completely in control of that and and, and determines the length of time determines everything to do with it prepares people in advance to to be able to preserve creation and to recreate afterwards and it's silly to think that, that there wouldn't be a different view of the world. It enables science, for instance, because at the end of the Noah story, there's a God says, I'm hanging up my battle bow. I'm not against humankind any longer. I'm not going to do this again. Well, that makes science possible because now everything's predictable. There was a God who was in control. He can intervene in human history and in the world, but... That's not a normal mode of operations. Otherwise, it, things are going to go along, and they're just going to be as they are. And, and so that's predictable. And now I can be, begin exploration scientifically of things. And the, the guy then said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I've never heard that argument before. Well, go read about Johannes Kepler who decided to become a scientist largely because he read the Bible and said, I want to know God's thoughts after him. And the way I can do that is to study his creation. And he's the guy who comes up with the laws of planetary motion that figures out that it's an elliptical thing, second law of thermodynamics, all those sort of things because of his prior commitment to a good God being the creator of the universe. And because of that, then we have things like Isaac Newton's theory of gravity and the relative theory of relativity from Einstein. Now, it, Einstein didn't claim to be a Christian, but he's built, building what he does on the work of these men who came before. And the first scientists were all significant and committed Christians. And in large part, they were paid by the church to carry out their scientific research and activities. So it, it's, it, don't stop arguing with people because of that. But, but do it in such a way that you're not arguing with them and it never becomes personal. Just keep sowing the seed.